Nathan's parents first started to notice his seizures when he was 10 weeks old. At the time, they didn't know that they were seizures, only that something seemed strange about his eyes, his facial expression, and his body movements. Catching a couple of these episodes on video proved to be invaluable in getting a quick diagnosis, as they happen sporadically and thus might not be seen in the doctor's office. After watching the videos, Nathan's paediatrician referred him to a paediatric neurologist, who confirmed these episodes as epileptic spasms. Nathan was immediately sent for a CT scan to confirm the diagnosis of tuberous sclerosis complex. Nathan started his first anti-seizure medication that day. The medication, along with others, showed limited success. When Nathan was 16 months old, his parents took him to visit TSC clinic at University of California, Los Angeles. They were able to find a medication to control the epileptic spasms, but Nathan had developed focal seizures as well, and these proved to be largely resistant to medication. Nathan was still having multiple seizures daily, and despite physical, occupational, and speech therapy, Nathan was slipping further and further behind developmentally. Nathan was 27 months old when Dr. Wu suggested surgery, and after initial reluctance, his parents decided to proceed with the necessary tests to determine his candidacy for surgery. The surgery was a success, and when asked nine weeks after operation, Nathan's parents had seen no seizures. Welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. I'm your co-host, Anthony. And I'm Juliet. Okay, so I'm very confused by that story. Are we discussing epilepsy? Uh, not quite. This condition often causes epilepsy. Okay. So what is it? So this is a genetic condition called tuberous sclerosis. Tuberous sclerosis. Yes. Tuber like a potato? Yeah, I think that's where it comes from. Okay, tell me more. (laughs) Okay, so tuberous sclerosis, or TSC, is a rare genetic condition that causes mainly non-cancerous tumours to develop in different parts of the body. Tumours, not tubers? (laughs) So I think the tuber bit is to do with the description of the shape, but no, it's tumours that form. Okay, and what did sclerosis mean? Sclerosis often means like scarring or hardened tissue. Okay, so in this case it just means tumours? Yeah, like potato-shaped tumours, I guess. Okay. I don't know why they came up with that name, okay? (laughs) Well, if you're gonna name something after a potato, then I want to know why. I think you're getting a little bit off topic right now. But potatoes... Brent, you just had breakfast, come on. (laughs) Okay, so this causes tumours throughout the body. What exactly is a tumour scientifically? In my head, it's like a lump. Okay, uh, I'll try to... I'll try to break this down. So, your cells have a whole load of processes where they do their own thing. And 
normally what will happen is they'll replicate and they'll replicate and they'll do their functions and when they're no longer working properly they will destroy themselves and your body cleans it up and removes them. However, sometimes what happens is that your cells kind of switch inside and then they, instead of destroying themselves, they actually keep replicating and they produce more of these dysfunctional cells and they make their own sort of community. And then this little community of cells, which you'd call a tumour at this point, can actually pull resources away from your body. So... So a little village of cells that are just, that just keep replicating instead of stopping? Yeah, yeah, it's like having squatters. <laughs> okay. So how does that form a tumor? Because you end up with too many cells in one place? Well, the tumor, as you'd think of it, is the solid mass that's formed from all of those cells making their community. Okay, so like a lump on my arm would be a little a little village of cells that have decided they're not going to just die, but instead they're going to keep replicating. Yeah, and they're going to take resources from the rest of the body. So they're going to make they're going to make the body make new blood vessels to feed them, and they can be quite inconvenient for the body. However, you notice how I said that it was a non-cancerous tumor. So there are two types of tumors that you'd think of. You either have the benign tumor, which is non-cancerous or you have the cancerous tumour. Okay. Now the di main difference between the two of them is that you have your tumour, and if it stays as that colony on its own, even if it grows, then it's typically a benign tumour. However, if some of the cells from that community break off and they form new tumours in the rest of the body, then they have metastasized, and then they are cancerous cells because they form tumours around the body as well, and they break up and make more tumours. Okay, so a benign tumour is just sat there, getting in the way, but not making more tumours. Yeah, and as far as treatment goes, the big difference between a benign tumour and a cancerous tumour is that a benign tumour you can just remove with surgery if it can be cut out. A cancerous tumour, you might remove the mass with, sur uh, with surgery, but you'll need medication afterwards like chemotherapy or radiotherapy to get rid of the other cells. Okay, so in this disease you end up with lots of tumours, so these lumps of extra cells that are just kind of there and getting in the way? Yeah. Okay, so what problems do these tumours cause? Tumours in my head are not a good thing. <laughs> no, they typically aren't, and with this, the where the tumours are has a big effect on what sort of symptoms you can expect. One of the most common symptoms, or one of the, I should say one of the most common health problems associated with TSC is epilepsy. And this will be because of tumours forming uh, on the nerves in the brain and disrupting the signals being sent, so people will start to get seizures. Brain tumours? Yes, you can get brain tumours from this. That sounds super serious. It can be, yes. Other conditions are learning disabilities, similar sort of thing. If you're disrupting certain signals in the brain, it's going to make certain types of development more difficult. And uh, behavioural problems such as hyperactivity or autism spectrum disorder. All from having tumours in the brain. Yeah, basically. Uh, you can also get uh, skin abnormalities, which, you know, you get tumours on the skin, that's not too surprising. So this could be uh, patches of light-coloured or thickened skin or uh, what I'd 
called red acne-like spots on the face. So this is like acne that you can't get rid of with medication or cream. Oh no! A more severe problem you can get is that the kidneys may not work properly. Because if tumours build up in the kidneys, then they're going to disrupt the function of the kidney. So these tumours really are everywhere. Yeah, any part of the body can be affected. It's very different with each patient. So what happens for them is very variable. Okay, so one patient may have a bunch of little brain tumours, but another patient may just have them all over their skin. Yeah, or they might get them in the lungs and it will cause breathing difficulties. Ah. Yeah. And the brain one can have a, a whole host of different effects. So the brain tumours could cause epilepsy or the learning disabilities. What it can also cause is a condition called hydrocephalus, which is a build-up of fluid in the brain. Oh no, water brain. Well, that can then cause a build-up of pressure and that can damage the brain. Oh no. So that can be very, very serious. So how do we figure out who has this? I guess looking for tumours? Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, it's, this is diagnosis is based off of symptoms. So, an eye examination is often included to check for tumors in the eye. Ah, I really don't like the idea of eye tumors. Yeah, a skin examination to look for abnormal growths or patches of pale, thickened skin. MRI tests are often used to detect for tumors in the brain or kidneys, and a CT scan. So that's the uh, scan where they do lots and lots of X-rays and slices to get an image of the inside of your body. That's used to detect for tumours in the kidneys, heart or lungs. You can also have what's called an electroencephalogram or an EEG. And that's where you stick the little patches to your head to, um, with the wires so that you can measure brain activity. And this is to check for seizures because you can actually see a seizure on an EEG. Ooh, because of the electric currents? Yes, the, uh, the currents change, the signals change. Cool. I mean... Seizures aren't cool, but... <laughs> but it's interesting, isn't it? Electrocardiogram might get used, so an ECG. So that's the one where they stick the little electrodes to your chest to uh, check the electrical activity in your heart. Oh yeah, and then they leave the stickers on and you're covered in sticker marks for ages. Yeah, basically. That's the A&E experience. But you, you do that to detect um, any abnormal electrical activity in the heart that could be caused by tumours in the heart. Tumours in the heart? Tumours can be anywhere in this condition. This one is scary. I don't like it. A genetic blood test can also be taken in order to identify someone with uh, TSC. That sounds nice and easy. However, current genetic tests have had difficulty locating the mutation in roughly 20% of individuals diagnosed with TSC. So it's only 80% effective? Yeah. That seems like not high enough for a genetic test. I mean, it's better than 50-50, but you know, there, there's a lot of work still to be done. That's why there are still other forms of diagnosis in place. Okay, and when does this tend to be diagnosed for people? In the story, it was a baby, but is that how it is for everyone? No, no. This can vary massively depending on how these tumors present themselves. So you could just not have tumors uh, getting in the way of anything important until you're older? And nobody realizes you have this condition? Yes. Okay, so how much does this get in the way of people's lives? Does it affect their life expectancy? Well, from what I found, typically life expectancy is normal, but this can range massively depending on the severity of the condition. So if you have mild cases, don't expect life expectancy to be affected at all. However, some complications from TSC can be life-threatening, so they have to be dealt with very quickly. 
and depending on how successful you are at dealing with them, will affect life expectancy. I expect it's also seriously affected by access to healthcare. To some extent, yeah. Because it sounds like anything, any of the tumors that appear in a major organ would need surgery. Potentially, yes. Uh, There are quite a few cases where people need brain surgery or they need surgery in other parts of the body just to remove tumors. Okay. Are there any other ways to help treat people? Well, so there aren't any cures currently for TSC, but the treatments available include... There's a drug called rapamycin, and it's used to suppress the tumor growth and to break down some of the tumors. So this can be quite effective. However, it does also affect brain development in children, and it's an expensive drug to give as a continuous form of treatment. So it's not the best option, but it's what we've got. It can just go in the body and start destroying tumors? That's pretty badass. In a sense. It, it, it basically it triggers another system in your cells that helps manage these tumors by breaking down uh, stuff that the cells don't need inside them. Cool. For the epilepsy seizures, uh, medication is often used. However, sometimes surgery is needed. Now, this could either be to remove tumors, or it might be to uh, remove sections of the brain that are particularly damaged and are going to keep causing seizures. Remove sections of the brain? In the most severe cases of epilepsy, a hemispherectomy is sometimes used. Cutting off half the brain? Yes. But, like, doesn't half the brain do something? (laughs) Yeah, but your brain is really good at compensating for that. So you actually, you regain all your function. What? You can cut half my brain out and I'd be okay? Well, so the thing is that, to, to a certain extent both halves of the brain kind of mirror the functions for different parts of the body. So they still have that ability to do something. So say, for example, you have the speech region at the front of the brain, or what you'd think of as a speech center. Now, both halves of the brain have a speech center. So if you cut some of it out, you're going to need to do a bit of learning again, but you still have an area, you still have a part of your brain that's used to processing those signals. That's just crazy! It is pretty, uh, what you might view as a drastic surgery, but... In the most severe cases, it's really effective. So this is for people who medication doesn't work, other surgical interventions haven't worked, and they have seizures that are so severe that they could kill them. I'm just amazed that that's a thing that you can do. Yeah, so that's that's one thing. As I say, this isn't typically a surgery that you would expect. Well, this isn't really a surgery you'd expect with tuberous sclerosis, but you would see it in very severe cases of epilepsy sometimes. Wow. Going on to other treatments for TSC, after that little detour. For any learning disabilities, it's normally extra extra educational support is advised for children particularly. And for any behavioural problems caused by the tumours, cognitive behavioural therapy and medications such as antidepressants are recommended. As far as the um, symptoms go, the seizures are the most important ones to control, because a... A not uncommon form of death in patients with in TSC patients is what's known as status epilepticus, which is a prolonged seizure. Okay, how does that cause death? Well, if you have a seizure that's going on for like hours, then that's that's your brain going absolutely mental. It's exhausting. It's damaging. You, your your body can't handle all the all of the confused signals. 
I don't understand how that causes death. It's a single seizure that lasts more than five minutes in one go, and uh, it can cause severe brain damage, and uh, that's kind of where you would be seeing death coming from if a part of the brain that is central to uh, keeping you alive, such as breathing, gets damaged, then you would stop breathing from the seizure. Oh dear. So is that because, so seizures are when kind of the brain signals go haywire, right? Yeah, yeah, they're, like, they're firing like crazy. So, so that, how does that damage cells? Well, the seizure itself might cause damage from the actual uh, signal, but also if you're sending messed up signals throughout the brain, then parts of the brain that tell your heart and your lungs to work are also getting messed up signals. Oh, okay. So it's so so seizures are bad because they kind of stop your brain controlling the functions you need to be alive. Yes. Oh dear. Yeah, it's like a system shutdown. So that's not good. No. So, you know, when you consider that that's a potential thing, you can see how a hemispherectomy is a pretty reasonable approach. I didn't think it was unreasonable. I was amazed that that's a thing you can do and it works. It is quite amazing in some ways. For brain tumors, you can either just surgically remove the tumors in certain cases, or you give medications such as the rapamycin to shrink them. Very cool. I mean, brain tumors aren't cool, but the fact that medicine can get rid of brain tumors is cool. Okay, so let's start looking at the genetics of this. What type of mutation is it? So TSC is an autosomal dominant condition. Okay, so it's not sex-linked, and you only need one copy of it to be passed down. Yes. Yay! Yeah, that's correct. So, in, unfortunately though, two-thirds of cases occur because of spontaneous mutations. Two-thirds? Yep. Surprise tumors? Yep. No! Yeah, What's we... the point of these being dominant or recessive if they're just going to show up anyways? It's just what happens. Ah. Sometimes things in biology just happen. I don't like that. Well, tough. So a strange thing can happen from spontaneous mutations, which is uh, a phenomenon called mosaicism. Like a mosaic? Yeah, so a good way to think about it is if you have an embryo developing and the mutation occurs then, but it only occurs in some of the cells, only the cells descended from those original cells in the embryo have the mutation. What? So if you have a little embryo developing and the cells that make the limbs mutate to have this TSC mutation, then you're not expecting to have the dysfunction anywhere else other than the limbs because they're the only mutated cells. So the tumors only appear in the limbs instead of in your whole body? Yeah. Whoa. And that's because the mutation didn't occur until until after those cells in the embryo had specialized? Correct. I knew something? Yeah. Yay! Okay, that's really cool. So I guess that means... So, so can that happen if the gene is passed down, or is it only if it's a spontaneous mutation? 
that will only happen in a spontaneous mutation. Because what might happen is that, for example, if just the limbs are affected, then none of the sex cells are affected. So you can't pass the mutation on. Oh, whoa, really? Yeah. That's so cool. So there are cases of uh, mosaicism where someone has the condition, but they can't pass it on. Wow. It's kind of cool, right? Yeah. So what's a little different with this condition compared to some of the others are that there are actually two genes that are responsible for TSC. Oh, no. So there's TSC1 um, and TSC2. And TSC just stands for tuberous sclerosis con- uh, tuberous sclerosis complex. Say that five times fast. No. <laughs> so you can kind of get either one of them, but TSC2 mutations tend to be uh, more severe. Okay. And uh, both of these genes, they code, they encode proteins that work to suppress tumor growth. So if they're dysfunctional from mutation, then they can't tell your body, like, put the brakes on this cell, you're turning into a tumour. Wait, so they don't increase tumour growth, they stop tumour growth? They prevent tumour development. Does that mean my body's trying to make tumours all the time? Not trying to, but as as a result of continuous errors, yes. What? So I could... So my body's just always messing up and making tumours? It will make some mistakes. You've got to remember that it, it's basically making millions and millions of decisions every day. And could you get that many decisions correct in one go? No, decisions are hard. So, you know, they have, they have an error rate. And I think it's for DNA, it's one in a million. Okay, so occasionally my cells mess up and could start to make a tumour. But in my body... I have a mechanism that stops that, and that's what this gene controls? Yes. Okay, and what is that mechanism? This one in particular, I don't know if they know the specific mechanism of, but they know that the proteins produced suppress tumour growth. Okay, so in my body, my, my cells have this mechanism to suppress any rogue tumours. Yeah. And if I had TSC then I wouldn't have that mechanism. And so any rogue tumors would just keep growing. Yeah, potentially. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and we're going to keep it to that level of simplicity because I'm not describing advanced oncology to you because I am not confident in that. Okay, but but one... No, 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 no. One question. Are you going to make me regret this? If I have TSC... Are all my tumours always benign, or could I still get cancer from one of them? The description um, at the beginning was mostly benign. Mostly benign? Yes. Oh, so people with TSC just are freaking out about cancer all the time? No, not normally, because it's rare for them to get a cancer from it. Okay. And when you think that you know, in someone's life about one in two people get cancer anyway... There's really not much point in putting the extra thought into it when you know that 999 times out of a thousand or something like that, the lump that you found is benign. Oh, so they might panic less than the rest of us when they find a lump. Well, the thing is, they've got people looking out for them and treating them early. So I don't think that, I don't think typically 
people will panic. Uh, people with TSC will panic as much about tumors that they find. It's more the ones that you can't reach so easily, like the nervous ones that cause epilepsy, that would be more of a problem. Okay. I don't think we discussed how often does this condition occur? So it's uh, it differs a little bit between Europe and the USA, according to the National Organization of Rare Diseases. Uh, in Europe, the uh, predicted prevalence, well, in Europe, the prevalence is 1 in 11,300 people. Whilst in the States, it's one in every 6,000 people. That's a pretty big difference. Yes. Yes, it is. One in 6,000. So, pretty rare, but not as rare as some things we've discussed. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know why there is a difference in the rates between Europe and the USA. It could be something as simple as rates of diagnosis. But I couldn't find anything that gave any data to imply one theory or another. Okay. Now we're on to your least favourite section. More sad things that happen. Yes, other illnesses caused by this disease. But there were already so many sad things that happened with this. But wait, there's more. Oh. So, polycystic kidney disease is one condition that you can get with TSC. What does that mean? So polycystic, multiple cysts. And a cyst is just kind of like a... Like a little tumour, really. Is it? It can be. Oh. It's not the same as polycystic ovaries, where it's multiple eggs being produced. Oh, yes, that is what I was confusing it with. <laughs> okay, so your kidneys are messed up. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, if you're unlucky, this could cause something like kidney failure. And how is this different from just the tumours everywhere? So the uh, TSC2 gene is actually contiguous with another gene called PKD1. Next to? Yeah, they share a border with each other. So the genes are next to each other in the DNA sequence? Yes. So if you have a large enough mutation in TSC2, it also affects this PKD1 gene. Mutations in that gene are involved with a specific form of polycystic kidney disease. That's so interesting. Which is actually where the name of the gene comes from. PKD is polycystic kidney disease. Oh, so when your DNA has mutations, it can mess up lots of different genes just because they're next to each other? Yeah, it can do. Oh dear. Uh, another condition, and this may take a few takes, so everyone who's listening, I don't know which edit you're getting for this, but this condition is called lymphangioliomyomatosis of the lung. Wow, first time. That was a word? Yeah, yeah, I'm not repeating it. It's a rare progressive disease that can lead to destruction of lung tissue. That sounds not good. No, no, it does not. It's, yeah, no, it sounds bad. Yeah, let's just not go into that because we can't say it. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't actually, I, I don't know for certain what the, uh, how the two are linked, just that they happen to be associated with each other. So let's move on. Uh, bronchopneumonia is another condition that you can get. So, pneumonia. So acute inflammation of the bronchi. So they're the, uh, the two tubes that branch out, that split off to uh, each lung. So upper lung pneumonia. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for accepting that. <laughs> 
And on that note, we are at the end of this section. Great. Let's take a break. Good idea. And we're back. Is it history time? Yeah, it's history time. Is there good history for this one? Not really. Well, okay, tell me about it. Okay, so I couldn't find any reliable records for TSC before the 1800s. Uh, this could be because, you know, these tumours rep- uh, present themselves in all sorts of places and the condition's really variable, so having consistent descriptions of it throughout history is difficult. I guess it would just show up in the historical record as general tumour. Yeah, and it might be as a different condition. So we covered neurofibromatosis at an earlier point where members of royalty had tumor, had like tumours on their face and stuff like that that were marked in the coinage. But that was a very distinct type of... Uh, that was a very distinct, and it's something that's commonly found in that condition. TSC doesn't quite have that same trademark tumour representation. And then epilepsy has had a very variable history of diagnosis. Okay, so we don't have much in history about it, but then how did we figure out, or, but then when did we characterize it? So it first came, so TSC first came to medical attention when a dermatologist described the, um, a particular facial rash that's associated with it in 1835. And then a more complete case was presented by uh, Dr. von Ricklinghausen in 1862, who identified heart and brain tumours in a newborn who had only briefly lived. Oh. Yeah, I know, it's quite sad. And then in 1880, uh, Dr. Bourneville was credited with having first characterised the disease and coining the name tuberous sclerosis, uh, which earned it the eponym Bourneville's disease. Because, of course, people like to name it after the discoverer. Isn't Bourneville a chocolate? Yes, and you've got weird images in my head now. <laughs> anyway, then later on in 1908, the neurologist Vogt established a diagnostic triad of epilepsy, idiocy, and adenoma sebaceum, which is an obsolete term for facial angiofibroma. Well, that... Made that so much clearer. Yeah. So, uh, facial angiofibroma is like that sort of rashy tumor on the face that okay. they were describing earlier. And that middle symptom, idiocy. That oh, would dear. have been developmental issues. That's what we would call it now. Okay. So, by a diagnostic triad, what what does that mean? It means three symptoms that you need to see in order to diagnose the condition. So. From 1908, you would be diagnosing TSC if you saw epilepsy in the patient, if the patient had developmental issues, and the patient had this sort of facial tumorish rash. They had to have all three? Yes. Is that how we still diagnose it? No, no. We use things like CT scans and MRIs to take a look at tumors within the body as well. We, we have uh, a much better coverage, and then we also do the genetic tests. And because all three of those symptoms don't always appear in everyone. A lot of people would be missed out, yeah. Okay. 
Although that uh, diagnostic system was developed in 1908, it wouldn't be until 1993 that the first gene associated with TSC was discovered, which strangely was TSC2. They, they, they called it number two? I, I think that these got named later. Probably. Name, because then TSC1 was discovered in 1997. Well, that's cool. They've identified the gene. Yeah. And uh, 18 years ago in 2002, treatment with rapamycin was found to be effective at shrinking tumours in animals. And then this led to human trials of the drug uh, to treat several tumours associated with it. And it's now used as a treatment. So does this happen in animals too? Uh, I don't know if TSC happens in animals, but the uh, this system still shrinks tumours. So we still have some shared systems with animals and even small creatures that rapamycin works on. Cool. So, yeah, so that's, that's kind of like a little history of its, you know, its modern history, its characterization and what we've learned from it, what we learned of it coming up to around about now. Um, unfortunately, there wasn't any studies trying to date the age of the mutation, probably because most of them occur randomly. Yeah. And for that reason, it's probably why this mutation is still around as well, because selection means nothing if it occurs at random. Yeah, and... I guess it might not always be selected against anyways if it's appearing in a more benign form in somebody. Yeah, if it's less severe, then it might not be something that prevents someone from having children. So if it's just a facial rash, I can't imagine that being a big thing in a lot of societies going back. If it was just some lumps on the skin, again, I don't think that'd be a big thing. And even with things like, you know, the kidney ones, it that, that could be something where the effects aren't seen until after someone's had children. Okay. So I guess that random mutation also means we can't trace it geographically around the world. No, no, we can't see, like, uh, uh, points of origin for this. It's just something that bodies do. Yep. Yeah, it's just what the body does. Okay, so where are we now with this and where are we heading? So there is some uh, promising preclinical data for gene therapy. Ooh, okay, wait. Gene therapy is the thing where you give somebody new stem cells with the corrected gene? No? No, that's stem cell therapy. Oh, which thing is gene therapy? Gene therapy is the one where you basically insert the correct gene into the cells. Okay, so I'm kind of close. Not really, because you're trying to change cells that are already there. And that is an important bit, particularly in TSC. Oh, okay. You're changing cells that are already there. Yeah, so you use like a virus as a sort of delivery, uh, as a delivery crew to send the gene into the cells that the person already has. Oh, okay. So you'd put in, you'd, you'd deliver the gene for telling the cells to go kill their tumors into the cells that don't have it. And then they would start killing their tumors? Yes. Cool. So there was a mouse model that was developed for both the uh, gene gene mutations. So they actually managed to breed mice and create a mutation in this TSC gene. So uh, answering that question earlier, there must be some cases of animals that can get TSC. Maybe not naturally, but we've... But we've given it to mice. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah, we've... We, we've uh, mutated these uh, 
these uh, strains of uh, lab mice to have either the TSC1 have a TSC1 mutation or a TSC2 mutation, and gene therapy has worked on them. Cool. So that so that's quite good. That because uh, that's preclinical data, we're still a while off from that being uh, being on the market. You're looking at probably fifteen years or something like that. Okay, and if it worked and made it through to the market, is this the kind of thing that could cure people um i think that might be difficult because you're trying to with this one you're trying to affect every single cell in the body and i don't know if this would be a really difficult one to work out until there are clinical trials in place okay but it could definitely be a treatment to help people yes and it could it could offer some very long-term treatments okay so, for example, you might want to just affect. You might want to just administer, you know, administer directly to the most severe areas or the areas that could have the most severe tumors. So you might have it so that you know the brain, the heart, the lungs, the kidneys have all had the gene therapy, and then if it happens to have gotten other parts of the body as well, great. Okay. But obviously, that for how that treatment's done and how well it works. We won't know until there's any clinical data in place. There's also some data that suggests that uh, cannabidiol, uh, so CBD, like you've seen in those uh, shops when you walk past them, mm -hmm. uh, that it might help with some seizures caused by tuberous sclerosis. However, this data is very preliminary, so I wouldn't go about like smoking weed or uh, taking CBD oil or anything like that under the premise that it will help your seizures with TSC, because TSC seizures are quite different from standard epilepsy. Why? Because of the tumour involvement, rather than it just being a dysfunction of the nerves. So there is like a physical interaction. Oh, so instead of just like telling the nerves to calm down, there's a tumour physically in the way blocking signals. Yeah. So even if the nerves calm down, it might not help. So it might complicate things a bit. So I... Where CBD has been shown to be useful in treating some seizures, I would, I would say wait for clinic, more clinical data to come in place before putting it forward for before people like recommend anyone try it with TSC. Okay. It it just one of those things. It could it could either be not helpful or it could have some unknown side effects. So it's best not to go there yet. That's so interesting. Okay. So, what are some misconceptions with? this disease so there aren't really any misconceptions about tsc specifically but there are a lot about epilepsy and that's what's mostly associated with tsc so a lot of the difficulties that patients with tsc will deal with will be ignorance around epilepsy some of the uh, misconceptions i have here are specifically about seizures so a lot of people believe that you can swallow your tongue during a seizure and i've been told that one quite a few times from people that's wrong. Oh, well, it doesn't really make sense anyways. How can you swallow your tongue? Yeah, it, it, it's one of these things that's been told so many times between people that it's it's like it's it's viewed as a truth. Yeah, it's an urban legend, really. Wives' tales, probably the most accurate way of putting it. It's like that sort of medical approach. Your mother will tell you, you know, um, don't... Uh, you know, make sure you pull out someone's tongue when they're having a seizure or give them something to bite down on. And that goes on to the uh, next one, which is uh, some people believe that you should force something into the mouth of someone having a seizure. No, no, don't do that. 
someone might bite down. The, the belief behind this is that someone will bite their tongue off. That's extremely unlikely, and you're more likely to choke them by putting something in their mouth. Yeah, maybe don't stick things in people's mouths. Yeah, the general rule is do not stick something in someone's mouth unless you have consent. <laughs> the more you know. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Ant. Uh, I've got to finish the PhD before you can do that. Uh, another misconception is that you should restrain someone having a seizure. Is that, well, that's so that they don't hurt themselves or others, right? Yeah, so that was the belief for quite some time. But the problem is that someone who's having a full-on seizure, they can swing very hard. It can do a lot of damage to people trying to restrain them. And actually restraining them can cause them harm as well. So it's better just to give them space. You do want to help them to the ground though, right? Yes. Yeah, lying down position would be ideal. Yeah, so try and get them to a place where they won't hurt themselves, but then yeah, move it, away. It's also worth noting that with these three seizures, they're what are called grand mal seizures. What does that mean? So grand mal is French for big bad, and it's the seizures when someone goes into full spasms, they're swinging, swinging their limbs around, they, their eyes are all over the place, their mouth is opening and shutting really quickly. That What everyone thinks of when they hear a seizure. But there are other types of seizures. So there's like a petty mal seizure, which is more like when someone might just do a little bit of twitching and then it's done. Or you might have what's called an absence seizure, which is where someone's just gone for a bit. They're, they're not, they're not meant, like their, their mind has just kind of gone elsewhere for a while. It's, it's like they've, um, like they've re rebooted. So with, if you know somebody that suffers from epilepsy, maybe just Ask them what their seizures are like and what they want you to do if they have one. Yeah, yes, because they are very different. Another myth that people have about epilepsy is that it's contagious. What? Yeah, no, I don't know either, but uh, yeah. It's not contagious. This is not one of those things where if an epileptic person bites you, you now have epilepsy. <laughs> They're is. not werewolves. <laughs> Uh, another one is that people with epilepsy have such severe symptoms that they can't work. That varies massively amongst people. Some people, that might be true. But for a large proportion of epileptic people, it is managed well with treatment, and they can work absolutely fine. Another misconception is you can't die from a seizure. As discussed earlier, you can... Status epilepticus is extremely dangerous, and this is why when someone has a seizure, if someone has their first seizure, you should always call. Uh, you should always call an ambulance. If someone has a seizure that goes on for more than a few minutes, you should call a doctor, and if it goes on for more than five minutes, you should be calling an ambulance. Okay. And on that note, we're at the end of the show. That was a really interesting one. Thank you. Glad you liked it. I've got one little bit of reading that people can take a look at, which is. Mosaicism in tuberous sclerosis as a potential cause of the failure of molecular diagnosis. So broad strokes for that one. It's the idea that people haven't been able to always diagnose the mutations in people with TSC because not all of the cells have the mutation. Cool. Otherwise, I would recommend that people check out the tuberous sclerosis association for more information. Interestingly, one of the, I think she's the president of it is uh, Julianne Moore. Oh, cool. Yeah, so she she's involved in that one. Uh, she's involved in that charity. So it's definitely t worth taking a look at. Um, 
And obviously, if you want to learn more about it, the best thing to do is to ask someone with it or ask someone who works on TSC. Great. So if you enjoyed this episode or have any comments on it, get in touch with us on our Twitter at GeneticDrift1, on our email at GeneticDriftPodcast at gmail.com, or join our Facebook group and get involved in the discussion. Thank you. The music for this podcast, as with every episode, is produced by William Kitchener Music, so please check that out. And on that note, we'll just say, hold your judgment because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.